Greg. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your uh, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. And I'm a guy that sits here and talks, Corwin Heller. Now that's all we do. That's all we know how to do. And it's well, we definitely don't get paid to do it, so we're definitely not professionals. Um, although, if you wanted to, uh, let us know. You can pay us. We will take your money with very few questions asked. Um, we're talking about the 1979 film All That Jazz and the 1957 film 12 Angry Men uh, this week on the podcast. Corwin, do you have any place you would like to start? No. All right. <laughs> well, uh, was I guess last time I did have a preference. You usually do. Really? I think so. It sounds right. Yeah, um, right. Let's start with all that jazz. Because, um, I don't know, it's the first one on my notebook. Um, all right, 1979's All That Jazz, um, directed by Bob Fosse, written by Bob Fosse, along with Robert Allen Arthur, star- starring Roy Scheider, Jessica Lang, and Anne Reinking. Um, it had an estimated budget of $12 million, and a cumulative worldwide gross of $38 million, so we'll call that a success. Um, it had Its tagline was, all that work, all that glitter, all that pain, all that love, all that crazy rhythm, all that jazz. Which, yeah, sure. Um, okay. Yeah. It won four Oscars on the back of nine nominations. It won four Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Philip Rosenberg, Tony Walton, Edward Stewart, and Gary J. Brink. One for Best Costume Design for Albert Walski. One for Best Film Editing for Alan Heim. And Best Music Original Score for Ralph Burns. It was nominated for Best Picture for Robert Allen Arthur. Best Actor in a Leading Role for Roy Scheider. Best Director for Bob Fosse. Best Writing for Robert Allen Arthur and Bob Fosse. And Best cinematography for Giuseppe Rotuno. It is about director uh, slash choreographer Bob Fosse as he tells his own life as he details the sordid career of Joe Gideon, a womanizing, drug-using dancer. Uh, This was my pick, so I guess I'll start. Um, So I hadn't seen this movie in a while, and while I was watching it, I realized I think I've only ever seen it once. And my recollection of it is not what it is in terms of how I watched it. Um, because I don't remember it being this frenetic. Um, and I, I think that like, anyway, I, I really, I'll start with that. Like, I really like this movie, but like this movie comes at you. Um, oh, yeah. it, it, it is non fucking stop. And it's not just that the scenes themselves have a lot going on in them in terms of their intensity or what they are visually presenting to you or even the subject matter. There's a lot of cuts and a lot of angles and a lot of changes and not in like that tacky like early 2000s action movie way where it's like a fight scene mm-hmm. had 9,000 cuts in it. It's effective. It, it, it makes it, it, it does a really good job at something that we often talk about on this show as something that's very, very challenging which is giving you a good idea or representation of what's happening within a character's head. And that's where this movie could have really failed. Because this movie is very much so 
internal as much as it is external with what's being experienced versus what you're seeing of what's being experienced. And it does a really good job at conveying to you what is going through this man's mind. It does a decent amount of show, it does a decent amount of tell, and it does a decent amount of you having to um, absorb something through that based on what it has shown you or told you. It mm -hmm. balances things out really well. Um, music is a, is a central part, part of this film, of course, and I think they do it in a good way where you do get a few of like big song numbers, but they don't, it doesn't feel like a musical. They feel like they're there as part of the story, which is what I think makes this so effective, even if you're not like a musical theater person. Because it's like it's about musical theater and it has some of those some of those things in it. But it's not, hey, this is Oklahoma or hey, this is um cabaret. You know, it it they're there as a narrative piece instead of just being a performative piece, which I think adds a lot of layers to it. In addition to just how dark of a story this truly is, this is not a happy movie at almost really any turn, um, mm -hmm. which really, I think, contrasts very nicely to the glitz and glamour that is meant to be seen of the uh, musical theater world and the impression that you get from watching these pieces. Um, so I'm a, I'm a really big fan of this. Uh, I have a whole different outlook on it since I, I don't think I've seen it since like I was probably like, I don't know, 18, 19 and definitely not ready to absorb what's going on in here. And I'll probably watch this in another seven years and talk about how when I was 26, I wasn't ready to absorb it then either. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's just the passage of time. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Corwin, what did, what did you think? Uh, so as I was kind of like looking into this, just, you know, getting the preliminary, like what kind of movie should I expect? Uh, I saw that it was a musical and got very upset because I fucking hate musicals. I couldn't even get through like 15 minutes of La La Land. Uh, I've never actually watched a musical that I've gone back and like really enjoyed. To be fair, uh, La La Land starts in such a cr and I like La La Land, but it starts in such a cringy way. It's awful. Yeah. Um, but being said, this was not at all what I expected after having like read the description as a musical. Um, this was actually quite enjoyable. I thought the musical numbers were both extremely well done, which I cannot say for... I can't say that other musicals aren't well done with their musical numbers, just that I don't enjoy the way that they're done. Um, maybe because this one had boobs in it. Who knows? That's true. Um, but I really enjoyed the editing. I'm really glad you pointed that out, you know, so early on in your, you know, synopsis, because, you know, we always talk about that editing isn't something you should notice or that you should be drawn to. But because it's such a music-centered and rhythm-centered film, the editing just, just pops the way that it matches with everything and makes it so seamless and you can feel the rhythm in the way that it's shot and the way that this is uh, filmed and i really really like that narratively uh there were times where it just kind of lost me with just oh this is getting this is too long they need to cut this down this doesn't need to be this drawn out 
what have you, you know, whether it be the hallucination scenes or the afterlife, however you want to interpret that scenes. Um, but I do think it is a very well done movie. All right. So I guess, uh, let, let's, let's get into it, uh, a little bit. I'm gonna take a peek at my notes. Uh, I should really start writing down what I'm going to say for the little synopses at the beginning in my notes, mm-hmm. but that seems like too much work. Um, so what what make you of the i of the, the repetition that you get in the beginning with that little morning that morning routine with with the Alka Seltzer and 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 the pills and the 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 touching up in the mirror and the it's show and and how much cigarette smoking there is in this fucking film too. Oh my god! Um, but what make you of of the uh, the repetitive nature of that morning? Because I think that little routine in there is is your is your microcosm of the film that is there as hey life ain't great i have a hard time every morning just like being alive and being a guy um and but i'm gonna cap it off with a pretty phony looking smile in the mirror and an acknowledgement that this is all for show yeah, I think it really points out how hard he lives his life and how he doesn't really have time for anything other than working and fucking and smoking, obviously. Um, I, I did like that nature. I think it did really give us a good look into the kind of person that Joe Gideon was, uh, the kind of person we were about to you know, be enveloped by and all that. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Um, it did take me a while to actually be able to read the pill bottle and it's just, you know, amphetamines, essentially, you know, Adderall or five ants, whatever have you. Um, just, you know, getting them up peppy, getting them going, whatever, uh, whatever he needs. And what, what, so I'm trying to think of the best way I want to, I want to phrase this question because the idea of him being a, choreographer that is a very specific profession correct what is your impression of what that he like where what do you think of when you think of a choreographer because he paints a very specific picture of this career i think in this context it's you know he's was he not also the director um, I think so. It certainly seemed that way. Because I, I could have sworn they introduced him as director and choreographer. He might have even been one of the writers, too. Well, I don't think so, because when they were talking about the script, he was saying how he was unfamiliar with it. Oh, well, then never mind. Um, But I do think he was the director as well. And to that, I'll say just... You know, he focus. He is a director who is very hands on with the actual dance numbers, and I think it was just showing how much of a perfectionist, how much of an expert he was in that situation, how much weight his opinion and his knowledge carried, and you know, how everyone looked up to him in that regard. Right, and I think where I I wanted to go with this is when you're a, a director for a film that is not about you, I would imagine it would be weird to put too much of you into it. 
You know, if you're making a film about, uh, this is about like an airline, you know, New York to LA, right? It's about uh, like a flight. Are you sure about that? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, regardless, you know, let's say let's say you're making snakes on a plane. Yeah, it'd be weird to put too much of you into that movie that has a you know a pretty guided plot. I'm not talking about the quality of the nature of the plot of Snakes on the Plane, but there is a plot in that movie. Um, but there is a lot of representation of who Joe Gideon is in the dance scene that is most heavily rehearsed in this film, and that is highly sexual. Yes. Highly sexual. Yes. And I... That was... I just want to say, that was... I don't know why it was just out of nowhere for us watching this today. Well, because they show you the clips of it as and the, the uh, of the, the rehearsals, and the rehearsals are very like, you know, we gotta like you know keep your arms locked as you slide back on the floor, and you know you gotta do this little like twirl move on your ass before you get up, and, you know, like it's that's uh, a really crass description. Cause I don't know any terms for anything, but if you saw the move I'm trying to think of, you'd be like, oh yeah, that yeah. thing. Um, and then when it comes to the performance in front of the producers of the, of the play, um, then it gets in. They do the whole very cheery looking beginning part that you kind of saw rehearsed, and then it gets into the really sexual nature of it, where it's, I mean, tits out and faux fucking, um, and sexuality is a really big part of this film, um, which you get from other parts of this. That like there's scenes showing background. Um, flashbacks of Joe Gideon's life and his interactions with women throughout the film. And his, even his, his, his daughter makes remarks like his sexuality is a huge part of, of, of the film as a whole, but to see, that's why it's so interesting to see it on display in what would have been seemingly a, a, a show that wouldn't call for it. Um, but I guess we can kind of pivot because let's just pivot more over to the sexual nature of the film. Um, there's a lot going on with that too, I would say. Uh, I guess it doesn't... I don't know, where do you think his struggle with sex really came... Or his struggle with women really came from in this? His struggle? Yeah, because like, like he's clearly... He's got commitment problems and he's... It, I guess like you could chalk part of it up to like a relatively addicted nature... He he he's definitely hooked on cigarettes. He, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me he was a boozer, but I'm not sure how much of that you see it in in the film. He takes amphetamines every morning, and I'm sure they're prescribed, but who know God knows what for. Um, in the if, 70s? If, uh, who knows? That's know, what I'm saying. He yeah. prescribed, but at the same time, like who fucking knows? Yeah, there's like a doctor's name on the bottle, but I mean, in 1970 something, that doesn't mean anything. So you mm-hmm. could chalk up like like the hypersexuality to just being part of his addictive personality, but I wonder how much of it is also just a detachment from real life by way of the theater, because you you know you get that flashback to him in the um, in the nightclub talking with like the topless dancers. Like I don't know how how what did you get of his interactions with 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 sex? I you know going back to your previous question, I think his issues, his problems all kind of go back to his desire and essentially inability to allow himself any displeasure or, you know, not having any patience to deal with anything other than the fun shit he wants to do. You know, he doesn't have time to be bogged down by 
his daughter when he's busy. He doesn't have time to get bogged down by relationships when there's other people he wants to see. He doesn't get bogged down with a failing heart when there's literally anything else to do other than die. Um, so I think it's that mindset that causes his problems. As far as the women go, I mean, it's a clear... I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a lack of respect for the women around him. He definitely does lack respect for them. Um, but I don't know if that's the full picture. It definitely wasn't something I focused in on while watching. Um, but man, it's it's tough because he is a very abrasive man when it comes to dealing with the women around him. And it is just so uberly sexualized. Anytime his daughter isn't around. Um, so it's hard to say. Yeah. It, it, so he, it, this is a very full painting of a man that we see. And there's, there's a lot of facets to it. But a lot of it does come back to how he interacts with women. I think what you said is very accurate. And I think there's other parts of him. It's not even just the being bogged down. It's also the fact that he does get bogged down by so, by some things and not others. The fact he's he's dying in the hospital. Gotta get up and work. Hey man, do you have that that movie done yet? No, I'm still tweaking the editing in the 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 comedy monologue scene. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. he can't he can't he's got blinders on for like the enjoyment parts of some things, or even just the non work parts of some things. And then when it comes to actual work, he can't escape the details. And I'm sure that's also present in his relationships with women, which is like he enjoys certain parts of it like having sex but in terms of actually fostering a relationship i i would I, it's tough to to get too many details on each one of the inner relationships that he has because a lot of them are done in, in passing or or um not fully explored just based on the nature of the film but i would assume that you're getting a decent amount of that in there as well there's a there's a detachment and 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 a micromanaging aspect of it in addition mm -hmm. to this, to some childhood, I don't know if it's trauma or just childhood um, experience with sex, this addictiveness of his personality, his fierceness as he's, he's, a, he's a, also a controlling guy. You see that in the way he directs the the um, rehearsals and you see you in like the fight he has with the girl in the beginning of the movie about like, you're going out with a straight guy. Like, what do you mean you're going out with a straight guy? Like, like that argument. Um, it's this, manipulative this... as well. Oh, the very. way he talks, to, like it is the way he, at least early on, they focus on this a lot more uh, when he's talking to that. Uh, again, we'll have to discuss this more, but that that spirit angel person, ah, uh, the um, angel of death. Yes, yeah. Um, it is very manipulative the way he just throws around, you know, saying how he loves these women how um, he just kind of says what needs to be said in order to kind of bend them to what he wants to do. Um, it's it's a lot there. And I will say it's not anywhere close to being the correct way to deal with women. And I just, uh, I'm not, it was not comfortable watching that all go down. Oh, that could be said of many parts of this film, but yeah, yeah, you're you're very right. 
Um, so I guess let's talk about some of the, the 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 visuals of this film, starting with the angel of death to whom he recounts mm-hmm. memories and and um, parts of his life to. What what did you think of the that level that that style of narration and what it contributed to the film? Uh, I liked it. I really had no idea. I mean, early on, you kind of get what it is. Like, oh, this is a afterlife, looking back, retrospective, okay, maybe a dreamlike state, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not sure the context of what this is, and obviously that's a a creative choice. Um, But I thought it was fairly well done. Um, The only thing I necessarily didn't like outright was how indirect it was. It was just kind of like they were having this casual conversation while he's digging around a bunch of items that I honestly couldn't really nail down what they were, what the importance of them were, this, that, um, while she's just kind of hanging around. Um, So it's hard to say in that regard, but overall, I, I didn't mind it. And I guess that's nearly as the best you could say about that. So I, I, I like that as a, as a narrative um, style. It's, it's way more interesting than just a, and like um, overdubbed audio of a guy talking, you know, right. Um, it's visually more interesting. They also made it look very much so like it was a musical theater set with the, the way the angel of death was dressed and where she kind of sort of was. Um, I still don't fully have my mind made up on what it means because if it was the angel of death conversations happening more towards the end when he was in the hospital, um, where she makes an appearance, um, but the conversational aspect of it wasn't quite there, you'd get it. Like, here's a man on the precipice of death confronting death. Um, But it happens in the beginning. When he, you know, definitely is, has health problems. He was not a perfectly healthy man when he found himself in the hospital. But it happened in the beginning. And I, I thought it was nonlinear in that regard. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. Huh. Interesting. Because, yeah, that, that was my whole thing. Is like I, I, I really like that it's here, but I'm not quite sure I'm settled in on why it's here from that storytelling and and meaning perspective um the nonlinear one is interesting it it i i was also just wondering if there was a level of introspection with it like you know he doesn't clearly he he has some level of understanding that like hey i ain't so great a guy or uh hey i have problems with women that stem from this one encounter in this nightclub or like blah 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 um i like the nonlinear one though that's interesting that's fun yeah Nonlinear is always more fun. Uh, I, what? I take that back immediately. There are definitely times when it's not fun. Oh, sure. Jacob's Ladder. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you think about him? What do you think about Bob? Fa- not Bob Fawcett. Joe, Joe Gideon. John Gideon? Joe Gideon. Joe Gideon, the, the dad. Uh, not great. Sure, there are times when he is a good dad, you know. Having a good time with his mistress, girlfriend, and Tough daughter while they're doing the musical number. But man, there's just so much else there that's just 
you are not meant to be a father and you should not be a father um it's clearly uh, a man who cares but doesn't really know what to do right um and that's tough that's really tough because yeah the effort is one of the biggest aspects and it is difficult to look back and be like eh, we'll give them a pass whatever because oof, that is tough. Um, when it is someone you know that important, you know, in your life, it's your child who clearly is at a point where they need more from you. Um, so and I is literally asking for more, literally right. at several points. Yep, and I just I cannot go out and say he's a good dad because he's not. Oh no, he's definitely not. He he's not. definitely. You definitely sympathize with him in some aspects because he loves his daughter, but that's really where it ends. He womanizes people around his what eleven-year-old daughter, I think it was said, um, to the point where she goes, "You gotta stop sleeping around, Daddy." Like he, the the most wholesome interaction that we that we get is when she's dancing with him um, in the studio after work, and even that is kind of sad. Like obviously, your daughter's probably or son if he had had one is probably going to take up some level of interest in what you do for work especially when what you do for work is so damn interesting but at the same time like he's literally like acting as his daughter's dance instructor in that moment as his way of spending free time with her instead of doing like dumb dad shit like going to an arcade or or, or the movies or something like that like he's still he's still at work while she's there it's basically what that is like right and well, sorry. Finish. Finish up with your. No, like it, it. It's tough because like all the heart is there, but that's not all that it takes. It it takes a lot more than that. And he was lacking in so many areas. I I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of not great dad. <laughs> what were you gonna say? Uh, basically, just that you know, her wanting to do those things because you know that's what her dad enjoys and she wants to share that connection um i get it you know like i get her wanting to be a part of that part of his life because that's where he puts his focus puts his time um but granted in an ideal world he would want to put time towards things she enjoys herself you know individually and things that are separate from you know the rest of your life because that's solely what you do like that's all he does is dance yeah and i guess editing as well but regardless yeah no the daughter has no agency basically um so this film's really split i'd say into two main parts um it is it is divided in the first half which is about um joe gideon learning telling you a bit about his life directing uh, a play or a uh, uh, musical and trying to get by and then it's the second part which is joe gideon dying um obviously there's more acts to it than that but that's i think the the main line between these two parts of the film um so let's talk about the second part sure joe dying in the hospital because it is a very elongated death um yeah what did you make of the whole sequence of him slowly passing away? Josh, 
You cut out. I don't know if you can hear me. I uh, I can hear you. Uh, what, yeah, what, you cut out a little bit when you were asking the question. What, what, I'll say it again. Um, what make you of, of the whole series of sequences we have in the ending um, that showed Joe Gideon slowly passing away? I'm going to be honest. It, it, it definitely lost me. It lost my attention for just how long it was. Uh, you know, I don't want to call it convoluted, uh, but it was definitely something that kind of was too drawn out in my mind um, and wasn't quite clear enough with the intention of it because you weren't sure whether or not this was him still, you know, coming back from the coma or if it was him dying until very quick cut, zipping up the body bag, and I let out an audible laugh while watching it. And, I mean, I thought that aspect of it where it was, you know, if you are going to have this long, drawn-out scene, having that quick, comedic cut to, well, he's dead, there it goes. Or there you go, there's your answer. That's funny, and I can appreciate that. I just don't know if it's the best option but i can't really say i didn't appreciate it it just wasn't enough to to hold my attention and i I, you know i will fully come out and say that's on me yeah well it is the the most musical theatery part of the whole film um i i love it i love the end part of it um especially the big stage production ones where Joe is lying in a hospital bed in a soundstage watching a live Joe direct his loved ones as they, you know, wax poetic about his wasted life and how they need him and how he's got to be better and he's got to recover and he's kind of a son of a bitch and all that stuff. Um, I think the idea of that level of introspection especially around um, the uncertainty of your own demise is really interesting. And I think it adds a real punch to the gut, the fact that he dies because here he is spending so much time in the end part of this film, looking at who he is as a person, as told by the people around him, by the medium, that he has spent his entire life dedicated to. And if he had come out of it, you'd think he might be able to take something from that. He also has a meaningful conversation with, with the, with the uh, custodian while he's just in the hospital alive that he's conscious for. We revisit, they're revisiting songs from when, when they were younger, you know, and, and, and you see a sense of Joe getting back to the person he was before show business. There's a, there's a lot there that shows the character of the man beneath this very hard wall of drugs and I don't even know what level of personality type we want I, would be best to describe him here, but whatever you know terminology is correct to use with that, and there's a guy below there who is trying to 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 make his way out and, and hopefully f- find some level of correction towards his lifestyle, and he doesn't get the chance, whatever number chance it is, to do it, um, and that 
that's a powerful little moment there that hard cut over because in reality in his mind even though he's dying it's dance numbers it's glam it's glitter it's lights it's all that shit and in reality he's in a fucking body bag like in reality he's he's dead he's gone Mm -hmm. there's no chance for redemption anymore your daughter grows up without a dad this production goes underwater and all those people lose their jobs the women who loved you have to go on without you after being put on a hook because of you with your manipulative ways for so long and they're gonna have to grapple with that there's so many unanswered questions as a result of him being just a dick um and i i i I thoroughly enjoyed the ending, which also lasted a lot longer than I recall it lasting. Um, And I was getting worried at some point I was going to get tired of it, like I think you did. But I didn't, um, Mm -hmm. because uh, I I don't mind musical theater as much as you do. Um, I do not fault you for that. Uh, But, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'll be honest. Like, my distaste with musical theater goes so far as, like, have you ever seen the Book of Mormon? People, you know, everyone raves about it. I have not. I have not. I want to, but I have not. I couldn't even get into that. And, uh, you know, I I won't hold it against this movie because I, I, you know, can fully understand the regard towards, or not the regard, but I can still see the quality and, you know, emotional impact this film carries, even in the package it is in. Um, so I won't hold it against it. Uh, but man, it, it definitely wasn't a point with that ending where I felt I felt remorseful towards Gideon. I felt ups- I felt sad for his daughter. I felt sad for his ex-wife, his mistress, you know, the, the ladies involved who just couldn't who didn't have the opportunity to, you know, have that closure and, you know, he hurt and he caused uh, pain for, and they didn't have any way to get any recourse from that. And they are now left with the burning wreckage that he caused, but him himself, you know, he, he deserved what was coming towards him and what, uh, you know, what became of him. And so I just, I could not feel any remorse towards him himself. Which I think also is understandable. Um, Which, and I kept sitting there watching, you know, the end thinking, this was made, this is about the man who made this movie, which is just a crazy thought. Um, You know, like Bob Fosse is directing this movie that is ostensibly about him, where he, kills himself off with no opportunity justified or not or you know worthy or not i should say uh, of of getting you know that whatever number of chance it is at being a better man and he's directing himself having to like go through that at a point like bob fossey had heart problems and like is kind of was kind of a son of a bitch and like all that shit which is just so wild um anyway we there's so much to talk about with this film. We could we we've already spent like 40 minutes on it, which is more than we usually spend per film. Uh, we didn't even get into like the five stages of grief stuff, or um, there's so much to talk about with the the very very final musical number. But we'll it is it is it is time to move on. Um, so Corwin, 
uh, final thoughts and, and a review and um, rating? Final thoughts, you know, very well edited movie, very good technical movie, uh, very good narrative movie with, you know, some hiccups and some things along the way that I didn't love but could still appreciate. Uh, I'm going to give it a four out of five. Right on. Um, this movie is a walking heart attack. Um, it is, it's not tense in that it's like, oh God, what's going to happen? Oh God, what's going to happen? Oh God, what's going to happen? It's more so just like, oh wow, we're really trucking along here. Holy shit, what's that? Oh, where are we? Are they fucking? What's that? Um, yeah. There's a, like, it, it's, as I said at the top, it is very frenetic. Um, it is definitely meant to do that, and it does it very well. I find the story to be very interesting. I found the use of um, the song numbers to be very effective. I am a big fan of this movie. Um, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it five. I'm gonna give it five out of five. I I, I really love this movie. Um, so anyway, let's move on to Twelve Angry Men. Uh, 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet. Story by Reginald Rose. Uh, screenplay by. Reginald Rose, um, <laughs> directed by, uh, sorry, starring Henry Fonda, Lee Jacob, and Martin Balsam. Uh, it had an estimated budget of 350000 There's no way this is right. It said it had an estimated budget of $350,000, but a cumulative worldwide gross of $576. And there's just no way that's right. So Wikipedia has it at $337,000 for a budget which is close enough to what we have uh, on IMDb but 2 million dollars box office which i am much more akin to believe um i agree wow anyway uh tagline they have 12 scraps of paper 12 chances to kill ooh i uh, actually really like that uh it has no Oscars wins. It has three nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture for Henry Fonda and Reginald Rose, Best Director for Sidney Lumet, and Best Writing for Reginald Rose. Um, it is about a jury holdout attempts to prevent a miscarriage of justice by forcing his colleagues to reconsider the evidence. Corwin, this was your pick. You start. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those all-time classic films. Um, that really doesn't need too much of an introduction. Um, uh, a masterclass example of the power of dialogue and how it can carry a story, um, even in you know a limited setting. Uh, I think the character characterization of each of the twelve men in the room um, is just so well done that each one is its own unique individual that can carry their own backstory, their own motives, their own life experiences that you can both see, hear, and understand throughout. Um, and the way it twists information and emotion, um, I just, I think this is one of those few films that you could look at in the history of film and say, uh, it is perfect. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to bury the lead with this. I think this is one of the few perfect films that, you know, have been out there. It's been a long time since I've seen it, uh, many years. But at the same time, it, it's one that I've always gone back and looked at retrospectively and thought, that's one of the few greats. And, um, you know, I've, 
I honestly forgot Henry Fonda was the lead in this. I always thought it was the old man um, who kind of like voices his support for, you know, Henry Fonda's character. I always thought he was the one that set this all off. But, uh, you know, Mandela effect. Um, so, Josh, what were your thoughts? Oh, I I love this film. I'm a huge Sidney Lumet fan. Um, Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite movies. I bring that movie up all the time. Um, he's also done great adaptations of plays into films. Long Day's Journey into Night is, is uh, so well done. And you're right. This is one of like those perfect films. Not only is it um, fascinating in terms of its dialogue and its use of dialogue and how it maintains in a single set setting. Um, technically, there are like three sets, but really we spend all of our time in one. Um, how the dialogue manages to keep you in, how the editing manages to keep you in to make that one room stay an interesting setting as you spend so much time in it makes it really feel a lot bigger than it is at some points and very tight at other points when it's convenient. It's really great job with the camera work. This is, this is also like who you would expect to be these guys. Henry Fonda is like, Hollywood's nicest man. That was his whole reputation forever. Um, and Lee J. Cobb playing a son of a bitch. Like, that's who Lee J. Cobb is born to be in film. He is like the son of a bitch character. Like it's, everyone it's... here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Everyone here is exactly who you would expect them to be in the best way. Like it plays to everyone's strengths in such a perfect way. Um. Oh, I'm just excited. And also, the messaging of it, um, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about, is that I really remember it because I feel like this is a movie like a lot of us had to watch in high school. Um, and middle school, yeah, yeah, some somewhere loosely around there. And I remember, um, being very fixated on the facts of the case. And that being where a lot of this broke down. And I didn't remember how much of it is based around race. Um, because I, the last time I watched this film was probably in high school. And I don't know if I just wasn't as racially aware back then or if I um, just haven't have warped my conception of this film over time. Um, it just wasn't as in my mind as it was when I when watching this one. And it is right there. Uh, as as you go through this one throughout throughout the film in a lot of different ways, um, and so I think like literally every part of this film um, has aged exceedingly well and is just a joy to watch. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, that you know the aging and the message of a lot of the arguments in the film definitely stood out as something where you know it it really felt like a film that could have come out in 2020 and you probably could have released this film in 2020 with, you know, deep fakes, modern actors over, you know, the original and kept it shot for shot, the same line for line, the same. And I think it would be viewed as the same film in the same regard. Um, and, you know, you forget that as old as this film is, the, social issues going on in the country at that time were nearly one and the same. Uh, 
And, you know, going back to the, you know, when I tried to cut in earlier, uh, I forgot Lee J. Cobb was in this film. And, you know, seeing it, I was like, oh, wow, like, I, I totally forgot he's in this. And immediately knew without him having to open his mouth, like, oh, I mean, I know which one he's going to be. That's not hard to figure out. Uh, but yeah, wow. Just like the tone and the message of this really stood out because, you know, it's been years since I've watched this and you forget the intricacies of the story. And, you know, you remember the arguments of being able to see through the L train and, you know, the knife and what have you, but like you forget the, the social justice messages that you don't pick up on in middle school. You don't pick up on, when that's not something you focus on regularly, but now that in 2020, that is the fight that we have to deal with every day. It stands out. And I I really appreciate how well, like you said, this aged. I, I will say though, one, one quick caveat to add is how, you know, you, 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 you mentioned, how much the the racial stuff sticks out nowadays in 2020 we say that as white folk um and that is the one part of this film that if this was to be made this this year that would be really different everyone in this movie is white with the exception of the defendant everybody and Mm -hmm. i think that is very effective for 1957 and for honestly like most of the years since then um and you if you look at this film as more of white people in a major city having to confront a lot of their own biases and confront a lot of their own preconce- preconceived notions about other races and p- other people of other socioeconomic backgrounds, then it's a lot more effective than if you think about it as white people coming to save brown people from like other white people and then patting themselves on the back, which I'm not saying this movie does. But at the same time, I think there's a certain view that we look through. Again, we as as whiter people watching this look at it now that that was done at the time, which is, you know, nowadays it would be kind of weird to have a jury of 12 people of all white middle-aged men mm-hmm. or older. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be, it'd be weird that there's not one woman and there's not one person of color. and Unless it's the OJ trial. Oh man, that 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 prosecution. <laughs> um, uh, but that is very much so on display. And again, I still think that it works very well. If but you have to look at it for what it's trying to do. This is not about coming to an understanding with the black person next to you, right? It's not that specific. It is them trying to confront the racism and judgment of others in a more general way which i think is also very effective but also still kind of weird to see when there's no black people in the room you know um so i guess let's let's get into let's get into the facts of the case um so we the movie starts in the courtroom and it shows very quickly, you know, like like the judge looking kind of bored, and he's like, "Yeah, right, you're, you know, you guys are going to decide the case of the death penalty. Is, mur- is, is it murder? The death penalty? And 
He's, he's, he's barely there. Uh, the defendant is this like young brown looking kid looks very scared. And then you go off into the, uh, the jurors room, whatever they call that place. Um, and then that's, that's where the rest of the movie takes place. So, and you get the sense right off the bat as they go around and they go, all right, well, this kid's guilty, right? Let's, uh, let's take a vote and we'll get the fuck out of here. And I can go watch the Yankees uh, play, play the Indians and get on with my life. And everyone's like, yep, let's just do it. And you get this very casual nature from the film as to how it views your average person interacting with our judicial system, with, with our justice system. And that is the thing that leads to Henry Fonda saying that, hey, I want to dissent from this. It wasn't necessarily at the beginning that he thought this kid's innocent, or at the very least, this kid's not guilty. It's like, hey, this seems pretty serious. We should talk about that. And that is where, that's the first point this film makes, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think about how we interact with the judicial system as the beginning of an, of the beginning of what ends up becoming one of the most famous movies of all time? I think we see, you know, one of the biggest issues with the U S judicial system right there at the start where you know in theory being judged by a jury of your peers being given the facts of the case presented to them by people who are most qualified to do so are in a position to best interpret you know what should be done for you and hey they're your peers they decide your fate that seems fair and you know theory but when it gets to a point in the when it gets to the point in society where they don't know who you are, you're a different color than they are, you're a different social economic standing than they are, and they just have shit that in their mind is more important than you and your life as a whole, they don't give a shit. And they are willing to just move on and f- you know, send you off to kingdom come and say, it's somebody else's problem to decide whether you get into heaven or hell, whatever have you. Um, it's, it leads to things like this where, Hey, I have a ball game in a couple hours. Let's just send this guy to the chair. And, you know, this dark kid from the ghetto, of course he did it. He's that's the way those people are. Of course. Yeah. Oh my God. So uncomfortable. We like because we do not hear people talk like that anymore. Well, I mean, I mean, you and I personally, like, like, yeah. like those guys in the in the the room that room that talked like that. They those guys in New York City, those guys talk like that everywhere. You know, back in 1957, those guys were just like, yeah, like look at that one. Um, no one, even even today's racist people aren't usually like that obvious about it. Uh, I guess if they're carrying their tiki torches, they are. But like usually right. they're they they're not so like seeing it be just like and 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 in in a, in a position of importance where he was like yeah you agree right you also think that guy def that one of them definitely did it right one it's of like them. it's like you're sitting there and, and I'm just like oh my god what and you have to remind yourself <sighs> this is a white dude from 1957 which means he was probably born in the 18 fucking hundreds and it's like yeah no I should have expected this from you. Mm-hmm. Um, like but you're right. these guys had parents who fought in the Civil War. 
Oh, but which side were they on? <laughs> I think we know. Yeah, well, it's who's to say? <laughs> um, <laughs> that indifference, though, is really the the peeling back of the layers that this film does in terms of where these men stand on their on on this issue on this case is really what I've uh, what I think about how you should view your own views on anything to deal with society, not just racism, but really anything. Why do I think that? Right? These guys had a casual nature about them. That's the starting point. And Henry Fonda said, basically, why are we being so casual about this? Let's be serious. And that first question of why brought about the race question. Because he is brown. That's why. And that is going to lead to another, you know, layer being peeled back later on in the film. Well, he lives in the ghetto. Everyone in the ghetto is a dangerous person. Well, uh, I'm not sure if they used one of those other old tropes. Like, he's brown. That's what they do. Actually, I think they did. They did. I, they definitely yeah, did. yeah, they did. Um, but you get into it from there. And that's what the film does very effectively. It doesn't necessarily go throughout all the jurors individually. Some of them move a little bit quicker and with a little bit less you know like like the old man that first tags up with henry fonda just does so because he thinks henry fonda is like a nice guy we should hear him out and all that shit but it does a really good job of navigating you through the questions you should ask yourself about your own biases um on a stage that has stakes you know mm-hmm. um and, Where and your biases have real life consequences for those around you because of the decisions you're going to make that are affected by those biases. Exactly. Like I have a quote written down here that says he's lucky. He got a trial. That's said by one of the jurors. He's lucky. He got a trial. That that's how, that's how beneath them, beneath these white people, he views these Brown people. He's lucky. He got, he is lucky. His brown ass got a trial in my white America. That's that's wild. Right. Just the idea that you would view someone else who is of a different color and social economic standing as not being not being included in the Bill of Rights or not being, you know, privy to their constitutional rights. Yeah, because they they got more melanin and they might speak a di- slightly different language. Um, because they look different than I. Because they look different, and and the fact that they'll, and this is one thing that I think we see most starkly now because of the level that it's on nowadays is the clinging to any shred of hope in a fact that is a pretty suspect fact in of itself. Like, oh, this knife. There's not 10 of these knives in the world. Like, how he had to have been him. It's such a weird knife. No one's ever seen a knife like it. And Henry Fonda's like, I found this knife within two blocks of where he lived, like, just in a, on a, on a, in a shop, like, just a normal fucking, like, bodega. Like, it was just there. This cost but, me $6. Yeah, which even in 57 isn't prohibitively expensive. Like, it's... But but they 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 clung to that forever. Oh, the woman's testimony. It meant a lot. She didn't have glasses. It was the middle of the night through an L train. Like the I but, but every time one fact got disproven, this 
you know, the people kept going to what about this fact? What about this fact? And they wouldn't let the fact that one of the things that was brought up in the case got disproven be a reminder that you only needed reasonable doubt. There was a conviction that, well, if 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 it's not that thing, whatever, but this thing still proves it. And that's a scary rationale. And I wish that was brought up that this wasn't guilt or innocence. It was proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty. It, yeah, it, it's it's brought up here and there, you know, with the 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 man with the glasses, his one line of "I have doubts." Um, uh, that that was a good moment. I don't think it was. I think you're right. I think it would have been uh, if I was Henry Fonda, I would be hammering that point a lot more than he did. He definitely brought it up at some key points, but it would have been more. It would have also been effective to to have that be a constant reminder throughout the film that like we're not proving this kid's a saint. You know, mm-hmm. he very reasonably could have punched his dad in the goddamn face if if, if that's where this led to. But he, that's not proof he stabbed anybody. You know. Right. Um, we are just here to see if there is any possibility he didn't kill his dad. Exactly. And there's also a, a, another common thing that, that I think you know we see a lot of in this, which is, hey, this this racism is all well and good until you start attacking things about me. Um, right. With the one guy who was like, hey, I grew up in a ghetto. You can't talk trash about everyone who grew up in a ghetto because I grew up in a ghetto, and it's like, oh, well, now I'm glad. I don't mean you. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, I'm glad that you are now on the the correct side of things. Um, but at the same time, fuck you, guy. Like, maybe you should have considered that beforehand, um, instead of only jumping on the side of, hey, maybe this kid's not innocent. Um, after they started trash talking your neighborhood, you know. Oh, man. Just, like, watching this film and just seeing all these things happen in 1957 and just understanding that, again, this film could be released today and it would go over the same topics and the same issues. And, man, I just... It it was depressing. It was. It was, and it was, and it was definitely built for you to feel that way. Like, like, there's a great moment in there where the the guy who keeps going, like, I gotta get to the Yankees game, yada yada yada. I'm clearly Italian. Um. <laughs> anyway, um, where that guy was like, ah, fuck it, like I'll switch my vote over to not guilty, and the guy was like, why? And he was like, well, you know, like I want to get out of here, and he's like, that's not a reason. Yeah. And what the fuck's wrong with you, dude? And that's a, that's a great that's a great moment as well. The idea of being on the right side for the right reasons, you know, jumping off of a sinking ship while it might be admirable that you finally left it, doesn't mean that you did anything right. It just means that you're not continuing to do something wrong. And having the right intentions is like literally how this film gets started. The only reason mm-hmm. they're still having this conversation is because Henry Fonda had intentions, like. Being right for the right reasons matters just as much, if not more, than just being on the right side. And having that level of understanding about it is also a very prescient thing that I appreciate gets brought up in the film. 
Uh, I completely agree. I'm glad that was one of the points that they chose to focus on because it was, you know, it was something that is just as important as the opinions themselves is just going with whatever is most convenient because it affects you the least. And and there's oh, all types is... of those. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. And there's all types of those little, you know, every character is very, very much so representative of like a certain type of guy you might encounter. You know, uh, Jack Klugman is, is, is the guy, the guy that was from the ghetto. He's like, I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I was from the ghetto. Like, you don't hate the ghetto. And, you know, he's that guy. And like Ed Bagley, which I also totally forgot Ed Bagley was in this movie and was like, oh shit, dude. Um, which is just crazy to me. Because I always forget Ed Bagley Jr.'s dad was also an Oscar-winning actor. Um, and mm-hmm. there he is. Um, and then I, and then after I watched this, I was watching um, the old Adult Swim show, Children's Hospital, and saw Ed <laughs> Bagley Jr. And I was like, oh, how far you've come from your father. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, he's just there to be racist. Like, he's, he's just there to be like, I am an old white man, and I am a racist. Um, and the interesting duo of whomever the more stoic faced ma- the last two dudes to change over Lee J Cobb and that other guy I think the intellectual guy with the glasses yeah yeah I'll, I'm gonna go faux intellectual guy because th- that's another these are another two very specific types of dudes and two very specific types of people you see with some relative frequency or get an understanding of anyway because you have Lee J Cobb who is the loud brash impassioned dude who is you know ardent that he's there's a lot of emotion behind his racism and this other guy hid behind quote unquote facts Again, until it came to like him having to deal with something about him, the whole impressions from the glasses thing on his nose. Both those, both of those guys had at at the since they were the last two, they were hiding behind racism, or they they were racist hiding behind quote unquote facts, but they were doing it in two very different ways. And just because the other guy, the not Lee J Cobb guy, was doing it behind the guise of of intellectualism or sticking with the facts or you know the prosecution was is right or whatever that was still the underlying motive even and that's the thing it, it, i remember watching this in high school and thinking to myself that that guy was just you know really convinced of those facts he's not he's clinging to them just as much as lee j cobb was he's just not screaming about it but they're both dangerous dudes and it's <sighs> Just trying to think of how I want to word this. Um, it's the mentality of I know better than the rest of you, regardless of what new information is brought forward, because these are my own independent thoughts that are my own. They are obviously stronger than the physical evidence you bring forward to contradict them. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's again, you know, it is a level, it's an elitism that is highbrow versus the brash, outlandish, you know, angry comments, you know, those emotional, emotion filled 
reactions from you know Lee Cobb. Um, but man, just like looking at this from a, a larger or a wider angle, just looking at this, you know, taking a step back, it's amazing how complete of a film they put together in an hour and a half. Because you do not see those know. length films anymore. Like we, it was just mentioned when we were talking about all that jazz, just how there was a lot of scenes that could be cut down that were just a little too long and drawn out. And this is just so perfectly concise yet complete. Oh, very much so. And one of there's so much subtlety in addition to all of the bigger points we brought up, which is always the sign of a great movie when there's layers. Um, one of the things I was I was thinking about a lot throughout the film was Lee J. Cobb when he when he was first talking to Henry Fonda and he was like, you know, you got kids, and Henry Fonda was like, yeah, I got three, and then Lee J. Cobb completely ignores his answer <laughs> and goes, yeah, I got one. He hates me. Never talks to me. You know, you spend your whole life raising a kid. Huh? I was just saying, like, yeah, I haven't talked to him in, like, two years. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he talks about how it's like, oh, I raised this kid, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, he punched me in the face one day. We got into a big fight. and uh, haven't talked to him since. And here he is showing you exactly why. Mm -hmm. Here he is showing you. Because no one else, you really get too much into their personal lives outside of the film. But this is this is that the Lee J. Cobb character, if you know anybody like it, I sure do, showing you exactly why this guy's kids fucking hate him. He is so convinced. While, while being presented with fact upon fact upon fact, or at least with questions about his own beliefs, stays with his conviction so strongly that he was literally ready to send a kid to die because of it. Because either he could not admit he was wrong or because he was so in touch with his inner racism that he couldn't put it aside to bring about justice, which I guess is truly how racism works. Or because he was so successful at pushing his own son out of his life, that's enough motive. That's enough to prove the motive that this son would want to kill his father. Right, an extension of like, you know, my son would have you know, would kill me if he had the chance. Yeah, some shit like that. He putting himself in that situation. Um, and I, I think that's even though it's not brought up really at all after that first part. After like, his son isn't mentioned again, I don't think after the one time he is mentioned, it it really sat with me this time. How that really to me shows who these people, how these people probably seen and interacted with on the outside world, and how much of this is going to like these aren't just their beliefs in this room or on this issue or even on race. This is how these people interact with everybody all the time. Even people of their own race, they're still assholes because they're assholes because they don't take the time to peel back the layers that this script requires these characters to be peeled back. Henry Fonda, I bet it's not mentioned. I bet he's got a great relationship with his kids. He didn't say, yeah, I got three. He was like, yeah, I have three. He was like very polite about it. They're probably good kids. 
they they're probably all president at the same time. Um, <laughs> whereas Lee J. Cobb, someone will fucking talk to him, and like that says a lot probably about who these people are in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I found it to be a lot more meaningful of a of a of a plot point this this viewing than in my most recent viewing to this. Um, right. Yeah. Is there anything in this film you would have changed? Any changes you would have made? Oh, that's a good question. Um I don't I don't think so, honestly. It it pacing wise it's just so well done. It it it's it's gripping. It does a lot with the changes in in lighting and in angles, shot angles and in editing and and in tone, it's not heat the whole way through. There's gaps um, that that lets you kind of reset a little bit. It, I, and in terms of discussion, you know, maybe there's other points that that are worth bringing up and exploring in in some level of depth here or there. But that's just nitpicking at that point, and I, I don't have anything even specific I would have to mention. So I don't think so. I, I, I really don't think I would touch this movie. I wouldn't either. That's why I brought it up. It it is perfect. Um, do you have anything else to bring up before we get into ratings and reviews? No, we we covered uh, everything I took note on. Um, this was so I watched this with Quinn this weekend. This was the first black and white film she watched to completion. Wow! And I showed her a clip of it. You know, when she first got here, like, hey, this is something we got to watch this weekend. You know, just giving you a heads up because it is old and different from what we normally watch together and she just she was distraught she was like i can't believe we have to watch this this looks awful like i can't do it and i was like you are going to like it if you pay attention and to her credit she did you know it wasn't you know complete focus taking notes kind of attention but she did for you know the most part pay dutiful attention to the plot and what was going on and the dialogue and at the end she was like, I love that movie. How does it feel being right all the time? Because that was a tremendous movie. I was like, hey, just got to give it a chance. I I fucking know. I showed uh, one of my college roommates his first black and white movie and his first foreign language movie. I did both of the same movie. Um, I've, have you ever watched M? Um, M for Murder? Just that's, that's all it's called. It's called M. No, I've not. It's a German film. Oh man, I might have to pick that soon. That's a killer of a movie. Holy shit! Can we um, give like English just a chance for a little bit? No, we cannot. And it's such a great movie. It's Fritz Lang before he had to flee. The- it's Fritz Lang directing Peter Lorre. Oh, oh man! Before both of them had to flee the Nazis. So cool. I'm just gonna start picking fucking dog shit until you can just agree to pick like three straight weeks of English film. I can't do it. So I would like to say two quick fun facts. They're not super fun, but they're kind of they're 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 not. Anyway, um, Fritz Lang, famous director, uh, famous German director, most notable for having directed Metropolis and M, um, was Jewish and lived in Germany in the 30s and was so well liked by Hitler Hitler was willing to give him a pass for being Jewish to just stay in Germany and keep making movies. And Fritz Lang was like, no, thank you. And fled to America. Yeah, I'm good. 
But his wife was like, bro, why are you leaving Germany? Hitler is the shit and stayed. Did uh, did they stay together? No, they did not from what I, from yeah, what okay. I know. And then my fun fact about Peter Lorre is when Peter Lorre came to America, he did not speak English, but wanted to still be an actor. So he got jobs as an actor and just learned all of his lines phonetically. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, one of the all-time best. You've, you've seen Peter Lorre in many movies. I'm sure of it. Okay. I love him. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, shall we do a final rating and review? Sure. All right, this was your film. You want to start? Yeah, I can start. Uh, it was perfect, and I would change nothing. Five out of five. I was about to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, we didn't get into the... Um, actually, let me, let me revise. We, we spent a lot more time in the weeds of the film than we, than we usually do with these types of movies because this movie, plot-wise, is about uh, a jury that slowly goes from one vote to uh, acquit a murder accusee to a full acquittal of the man uh, uh, um, on trial for murder. And that's the whole movie. That is the entire hour and a half is that one poorly laid out sentence. And usually with films that we talk about that don't have much happening in the plot, Corwin and I struggle a bit more with what to talk about. If they're just kind of narrowly focused in terms again and strictly in terms of plot but this film has so much going on in the dialogue that is a combination of subtle and not subtle that brings about questions to ask yourself questions upon society and just great discussion points that we really had a lot to say about it and with a film so narrowly focused in its plot um, so quiet in terms of what it's trying to do, it gets so much done. There is not a meaningless 30 seconds in this film. It is so incredibly tight, compact, and well-made. Um, it is such an easy 5 out of 5. Um, and strongly recommended to everybody. And if you haven't, even, if you, even if you've seen it, and it just has, it's just been a while, man. Just go fucking find it. You're, you're, you ain't going to be disappointed. That's exactly why I picked it. Uh, all right, then let's get into our our spooky picks for next week. So next next Maybe. episode will be <laughs> will be coming out um, October twenty seventh, and we figured because um, we didn't want to pass Halloween without doing a Halloween episode, we would do a Halloween episode before Halloween. So Corwin, what is your spooky pick? I was gonna pick Scooby Doo because I thought that would be fun to review. Where are you? But, hello? Scooby Dooby Doo. Where are where, you? Oh, uh, I'm done. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I wanted to pick Scooby Doo. I thought that'd be fun. But then I realized that, you know, I hate horror films. And there's been one that I've wanted to see for so long that I've been putting off because I know it's going to be a truly phenomenal film. And I just don't want to watch it unless I'm forced to watch it. Uh, so I'm going to pick Hereditary. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I got I worried you were going to pick my pick. Okay. Oh, All that right. means yours is a fucking horror film, too. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, um, no. I'm going to pick uh, 
it's an Oscar-winning film. It was nominated for seven of them. It's a great movie. 1973's The Exorcist. Oh, okay. All right. At least I know what I'm getting into. Lee J. Cobb, Max von Sydow, Ellen Bernstein. This is a great movie. Max von Sydow's in The Exorcist? Yeah. I totally forgot that. Or like, I, I feel like I've known that and just have completely stricken that from my memory. Yeah, Even though I'm sure we talked about this when he passed. Almost certainly. Um, yeah. This is a, a directed by, uh, what's his name? Uh, Billy Freakin. This uh, is one of the great, one of the great horror films. And it, it made so many tropes that we have nowadays. Um, it's a, oh, I'm excited for this rewatch. Oh, Kel yeah, is going to hate it. Huh? Uh, he's the old priest. I just I forgot. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Oh man, I so, don't want to watch. This. I, 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 this is gonna be the worst week for me. I, I don't do wait. horror films. I can't. Oh. Well, <laughs> you're gonna love it. Let me pick fucking Scooby Doo or Hocus Pocus or fucking the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Ugh. Nope. We are going to make Corwin sad. Um, so those are the picks. Um, what year did Hereditary come out? 2014, 2016? 2018, I think. Yeah, 2018. Wow, that recent. All right. Uh, so 2018's Hereditary, 1973's The Exorcist. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And um, until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Bye.